Good morning, church. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Jake Stouffer. Today, for scripture, we'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 1 through 16. That can be found on page 831 in your pew Bible. Again, that's Matthew chapter 26, verses 1 through 16, on page 831 in the Pew Bible. It says this. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, will you, will you, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thanks for a chance to talk about who you are, what it means to worship you. Thanks for these portraits of how people react to you. I pray for a spirit of like honesty and openness in the room this morning that we could be honest about how, how we are reacting to you, where there's resistance to you, where there's a worship of you, what, what we need, what, we, um, what we're struggling with. Would you meet us in those spaces? Um, thanks for these examples that we get to watch and that become um, invitations to us. So invite us, Holy Spirit, to come closer to Jesus to see him for who he is, uh, and then would you change us because of what we see? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, hey, if you're visiting, I realize that, that announcement was like, that's a long thing, um, and this is maybe even stranger to come into like the middle of Matthew here in this section, so uh, let me just kind of give you some orientation to where we've been. When I started at the church in December of 2020, we started in the book of Matthew, and my desire there was simply to like hold up Jesus and say, I think the best thing I can do as a pastor is keep pointing to Jesus and help people either fall in love with him for the first time or remember who he is and what they love about him. And so we have been kind of marching through Matthew since December of 2020. We've taken a couple of small breaks for some different mini-series, but essentially like a hundred sermons later, uh, we're getting close to the end of Matthew. But as I mapped this thing out in the spring, 
Um, I thought, all right, either we're going to do every single passage the same way and finish up sometime in the fall, which I wasn't like losing stamina. I've loved my friend Matthew this whole time. It's been a great companion to walk through. But I was thinking about you guys and how long we've been here and maybe kind of opening up some of the Old Testament and some, some different passages. So when we were mapping it out, we got to the spot where we realized we were close enough to the end of the book of Matthew that we could read what is called the Passion Week from Jesus' triumphal entry when he comes into Jerusalem and then to his crucifixion, his betrayal, and actually to his death, burial, and resurrection. We could read that during the week of Easter, preach both the triumphal entry on the front end, preach the resurrection text on Easter Sunday, and then we would backfill some of the teachings that we would skip over in that space, and then they kind of let the drama of Holy Week kind of be what it was, to let you read through, um, starting on Good Friday, some of those betrayal passages and read through his teaching in his final days. So, so if you were with us back in Easter, we've kind of already covered the end of chapter 26 and 27 and 28. And now, not haphazardly, but, but maybe unconventionally, we're going, we went back to kind of preach some of those. And we're scheduled to finish up Matthew next Sunday. I might have made that even more confusing for you, but essentially we, we went forward and then we came back. It's kind of what, I'm, what that's all I needed to say to you. Uh, so we've, we've talked through that. So, so we come to these last two sermons on Matthew. It won't be the end of the book, but um, it's actually focused in poising us to think about the end of the book. What Matthew does in this section is puts in front of us two options and then one invitation. He's done some teaching. We walked through a teaching section from chapter 24, 25. And now you see here in the verse 1 of chapter 26, it says, when Jesus had finished teaching all of these things. And if you've been with us, you know that there's actually five main sermons in the book of Matthew. So, so Matthew is flagging for us, okay, all the teaching now of who Jesus is, what he's come to do, what he promised, what it means to respond to him, what it means to live into his kingdom. Jesus has said all of that. And now really skillfully, he says, what are you going to do about that? He's told you who he is. He showed you who he is through his miracles. He actually four times has kind of talked about this idea that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to go to the cross. This is the fourth one of those. This is the main theme of the book of Matthew. And, and it's what actually we cover in the middle of chapter 26 and 27 and 28. So, so he says, hey, all the teaching has been done. Jesus caps it and says this. You know that after two days of the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is not just a transition sentence. It's a summary sentence in so many ways of the gospel message of Christianity, of, of what Jesus actually came to do. And so in, a, I think, a brilliant way, what Matthew has done, after the teaching settles, he says, hey, what are you going to do? Because, because everything Jesus has taught demands and deserves actually a response from you. And it would be dangerous to your soul to simply hear these words and just appreciate them or just acknowledge them or think about their historicity. It's actually meant to be responded to because Jesus has come and made claims about him being God himself. He showed that through a series of miracles, doing things that only God can do. We see him get embroiled in controversy when he keeps that thread going of what only God can do when he's pronounced like forgiveness of sins to people. And the religious leaders are up in arms in ways actually that we're going to see here in just a moment that Jesus has actually declared very clearly, I am God. I came to keep the promises of God. I've proved that I'm God. Now, what will you do with that? And this morning what we see, there's two options, one of worship and devotion 
and one of resistance and rejection. We see those with power represented by the religious leaders and those who, are, who don't have power, but they're close to Jesus in proximity with the disciples. We see them kind of one group struggling to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. And then we see this woman who's unnamed, who declares the good news of what Jesus says he was going to do. She believes it, embraces it, and pours out her devotion on Jesus. So, so Matthew puts these two options in front of you. Next week, the invitation will come as Jesus further explains this with the Passover meal and then the installation of what we call communion that we celebrate every week and a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is how this whole thing ends. In that space, what we see is Jesus inviting people into a relationship and into a meal. So all the teaching has been done. And if you're first time with us, like, welcome. It's all amazing. It's been great teaching. You're kind of catching the climax. Or you're turning the movie on at that moment when the music is really loud and it's super intense. Like this is the climax of the book. And what I want you to see there is the invitation and the um, challenge of what will you do? How will you choose? How will you respond? Because Matthew opens up in chapter, 20, or chapter 1, uh, verse 21, where it just says, this is the Son of God. He came to free his people from their sins. So from the very beginning, that, that has been the declaration. And then Jesus has taught that multiple times. Again, he's predicted his own death multiple times to say the essence of what I am about is to come and actually rescue you. So here's what I want to do. I want to use kind of the text to walk through four movements. One, what is the content of our worship? What is the contrast for different kinds of worship? A caution about worship and then a call to worship. So content, contrast, caution, and call. And I'm kind of already into this content section because Jesus has just told us what is the essence of worship. It's the, it's the summary of the gospel that Jesus was going to be betrayed, that he was going to die, that he was going to pay the penalty for our sins. And what you read in 26, 27, and 28 is, is the trial and betrayal and him going all the way to fulfill the promise of what he said he was going to do. And it's not a small detail when you see in chapter 2 that this is happening around Passover. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Passover is a reference to an Old Testament event that we see in the book of Exodus. God's people have been slaves for 400 years. And God delivers them miraculously. And before he delivers them, they celebrate this Passover meal. God says he's going to come in judgment over sin. But if they would sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorpost of their home... Then when the angel of death comes through their city, it would pass over them. If you're familiar with the Bible, that is rich in imagery of what Jesus came to do. The scripture actually says that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this thing that they've been rehearsing for a thousand years was getting them ready to understand that they needed a sacrifice. The story of the Bible is that we were imprisoned and slaves. Right after creation, by chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the brokenness and the fall of humanity. And in that brokenness, you see the overt and rank and dysfunctional and heinous expressions of sin that we commit and that are committed against us. You could call that very easily kind of a slavery to self or a slavery to sin. And you just see it played out generation after generation after generation. And then in really sharp contrast, as they actually are physically slaves, God comes and delivers them through a sacrifice. 
Old Testament would set up more sacrifices too, like more training and more teaching for people. But, but the Passover would be the primary metaphor, the Exodus metaphor of God delivering his people. So as Jesus comes to this climactic moment in his ministry, all the teaching is done. He's timed it where it is at that moment where they will be making preparation to celebrate the fact that they needed a sacrifice to deliver them. God provided that for them. And in that moment, all the imagery is right there for Jesus to be seen and recognized as the one who would keep the promises of God. The content of worship is the good news of the gospel that we serve a God who stood in our place and took the penalty for our sin and made a way for us to be delivered from slavery. Because you didn't just need like more information. You didn't need affirmation. You didn't need reform. You didn't need to learn new things. You needed deliverance and rescue. Jesus will say like in Mark 10 that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. In the book of John, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So at the center of the entire Christian story is summed up in verse 2 here that he came to actually give his life for you. That is the thing that Matthew wants you to wrestle with. What do you think about that? Have you accepted that? Do you affirm that? Have you actually believed that? Are you struggling to see your need for that? Do you, do you resist that? What we see in a moment as we walk into these contrasts is that some people hear that clearly and say no. They, they would rather say themselves. They would rather hold on to the status quo. They would rather keep doing what they've been doing. Some because they have power and the system is advantage to them. And some out of confusion, some out of disillusionment, some out of frustration, some out of unmet expectations. But you see some reject. And then in contrast, you see some receive that. And it is a lavish expression of worship. But, but the content is huge. If you're not familiar with Christianity or the Bible or God, just hear in a couple of sentences, the Bible is about a God who loves you who you had sinned against. And the scripture takes that sin real serious. It's not just a thing that we just slide under the rug. It actually says that if we're so broken, we're so in captivity, we, we have so been marred by sin that what we deserve is actually the just judgment of God. And so for God to still be just and to love us, there had to be some sort of payment for that sin. And God in his divine wisdom had already planned to come and die in our place to be that Sacrifice. He foreshadowed it way back in the Passover. All the Old Testament sacrifices, all the promises of the Old Testament are pointing to this, this one epicenter of good news that God himself would come and stand in our place. He would be delivered up and he would be crucified. And that would be the means by which you could be saved and rescued and redeemed. For all those who receive that, they make that their story. John 1, 12 says, Yet to all who received him, those who, who believed in his name, they, they take that in and say yes to that story. They become children of God. It's trust in what he did. It's not trust in what you're going to do or promises that you could make. It's the fact that Jesus was delivered up and he was crucified like he says he's going to do in verse 2. That becomes the hope for you. And the scriptures just show us over and over again as people believe that, take that in, receive that, make that their story, trust in Jesus, it radically changes them. It, it transforms them from the inside out. So it's not just a message to believe, it's a person to follow. 
And it's God himself who died in our place to make a way for us to be rescued. Like, what a beautiful thing. And in that space, then, as this beautiful thing is pushed to the center, what you see is two different common responses to it. So you, so you see the religious leaders in verse 3. Let's just read it for a second. It says, The chief priests and the elders, those who were in power, the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. He says he came to be the sacrifice for sins. He came to rescue mankind. He came to make a way for us to get back to God, and they want to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, let there be some sort of uproar or outrage, which actually does happen during his trial when they begin to demand Barabbas instead of Jesus. The same word there is used. You see people in power plotting together the arrest of Jesus to remove him. They didn't imagine that they were playing into God's sovereign hand here to be the means by which God would accomplish his ends of this sacrifice. They simply saw him as a threat and wanting to remove him. And then as you keep going down into the text, you see the disciples have a smaller, less empowered version of that. They're they're indignant of this woman's worship. They're frustrated by what's happening. And you actually see Judas then embody kind of a resistance to Jesus. So you see resistance on one side. And then you see at the center of this, this woman who comes to pour out her heart and devotion to God. This, This contrast is meant to be something that you look at and say, where am I? Where am I between these two? Where am I in my own journey? What have I done with Jesus? Is there's a rejection and denial and betrayal and there's devotion and acceptance. And I think what the point is to highlight the woman in the middle. Literally what's going on here to have a bookend of betrayal and then devotion and then betrayal is to shine lights on that devotion. It would be like a podium for like the Olympics where the gold medal's in the middle and the silver and bronze are on each side. You're, you're meant to like see the one in the middle. The one in the middle here is the one that we're to esteem and to, and to notice and to slow down on and pay attention to. And there's a ton of contrast, right? You have palaces on one side, and then you have the home of a leper on the other side. You have people, you have men in power, and then you have an unnamed woman. You have a very expensive perfume, and then you have this cost of 30 pieces of silver. There's contrast all throughout this whole thing. Again, pushing on you over and over again, what are you going to do with Jesus? And as we look at this woman in the middle, what we see is a beautiful expression of worship and devotion. Okay, I don't wear cologne. And if you've been around me, you're like, hey, dude, we get it. I understand. What you're smelling is pure sport from Old Spice. That is the aroma that I have. But like every middle school boy, I sure experimented with cologne when I was in school, right? Do you remember that, your first bottle of cologne when you like thought if a little is good, a lot must be like really good? And you just have this like fragrance and aroma around you. Can you go there now? If you're in middle school, hey man, hang in there. It gets better, I promise. But like all of us have been there trying to figure out how do we go forward, right? So, so you have like fragrances in your mind that are overpowering. Or maybe think about your friend who has an essential oils business and what it's like to like walk into their home and be confronted with the opportunity to jump on their downline as it confronts you with the, the smell of all that. Right? So you, you know what it's like to be in a place and smell something that gets your attention. Okay, take that and times it by 100 to think about a small home and at a perfume that is so powerful, it would just get into the very pores of the room. It would get into the fibers of your clothing. It would fill your nostrils. It would be almost like a palatable cloud. It would be so rich and thick. 
And don't think about like awkward middle school boys. Think about beauty. Think about extravagance. Think about something that, that satisfied your heart, that made you helped kind of pull into the moment to kind of appreciate with all of your senses what was going on. When this woman opens up this jar of very expensive ointment, we, we hear from history maybe it's worth like 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages. This would be expensive. It would also represent like her security probably. This is probably something that was like akin to a saving. So, so this represents not just a perfume that she has, but, but something that she would hold on to. Maybe it was like part of her dowry uh, or her, her kind of inheritance. It, it would no doubt would be a security. And again, you think about 300 days wages, like most of us don't have that much in the bank, right? This would be a way where she could provide for herself. And what she does when Jesus is there as she hears him say, I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to go all the way to be the sacrifice for your sins. What she does is pushes all of her chips to the center of the table and says, yes. What, what she does, the text says, should be repeated every time the gospel story is told. Did you see that in verse 13? A after they push against her, Jesus says, hey, leave her alone. What she's done is beautiful. He says in verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, what she's done is actually prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, whatever the gospel, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all of the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we stop for a second. It's the only place that I know of in Scripture that says that, hey, every time the gospel is told, you should tell this story. And it's not just because it gives a cheap laugh about cologne and perfume and essential oils. We should ask, why of all the stories? Why of all the stories in all the Bible is this the one that is said to be repeated? Like wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all of the world, Tell this woman's story. couple thoughts. The Bible is incredibly pro-woman. What you see here is not be like this man. What you actually see from this moment on is the faithfulness of women as dudes are bailing left and right. On purpose, all the gospel writers highlight their faithfulness as the dudes struggle with their denial and betrayal. They're the first witnesses to the resurrection. They're the ones who, who give testimony to the apostles that Christ has been raised. They're with him there at the cross. So you see here the Bible showing us, highlighting for us, the beauty of what we need and we get to benefit from in the ministry of women. That's part of it, I think. And then what you see is that what she embodies and represents is simple belief in Jesus. Connect these dots. He said, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. The disciples, every time he said that, have either said no, or they were super confused, or they changed the subject. The other three times that's happened, if you trace it through Matthew, it's super confusing. They don't go, tell us more. They say, no, you're not. Or they say, no, that's too sad. Or they ask about power. It's fascinating. When Jesus says in other places, I'm going to go to the cross, the disciples struggle to believe it. But here's this woman. He says, I'm going to die. And she says, yes. I believe you. I believe you're going to do what you said you're going to do. And then I think she would understand, I believe the significance of what you're going to do. I understand what is happening in Passover and my need to be delivered from slavery. And so I'm not just trusting that you're going to die. I'm trusting that death is going to be my security, the most valuable thing for me, the thing I could push all my chips into the table and hold on to for all of my very life and existence. What she does is says, I believe you, I trust you. Which is what it means to be a Christian. Again, John 1, 12 says, To all who 
received him. To those who believed in his name. That they took him in and they said, yes, I think what you're saying is true. That's what it takes to become a child of God. To see him, to trust him at his word, and to believe in him. And she embodies that physically with all of the senses activated in that moment of worship. She is giving testimony to the truth of the good news of the gospel. So of course, as you're telling the good news of the gospel and what it means You would say, hey, it means when Jesus says you needed someone to die in your place, that you don't resist that. You don't try to manage and find some other way, because that's what's going on in the contrast. The disciples are are frustrated. They think the money should be spent somewhere else. No doubt they're disillusioned. We, We see in other places, other accounts of this passage, we see like they're frustrated because... They actually want that money for themselves or they're not so much concerned for the poor, but they're, they're trying to figure out a way to kind of hold on to power. And you see the religious leaders who are warned over and over and over again. And we've said multiple times, every warning in Scripture is meant to be an invitation. When God promises judgment, it's to get your attention so that you would respond and you would move towards him. So rather than responding when they've been confronted, they continue to harden their hearts and resist. But in contrast, here's this unnamed woman. Just catch that. Here's all these powerful people that we have recorded in history. Here's an unnamed woman saying, yes, I, I believe you. And I know I need you to do that so that I can be rescued and set free. Again, it would take the sacrifice of God himself to actually get us into a place where we could be forgiven and set free. The contrast could not be more sharp or extravagant. What she does and how she pours out devotion is a, is a way of saying this is your whole life. The Bible is so clear that salvation comes by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. It's simply trusting what he's done. You can't earn it or deserve it. But after you trust him, it's your whole life. Jesus has told us multiple times in the book of Matthew that you have to die to yourself if you want to be my disciple. If you want to actually be raised to life, if you want to actually experience freedom and liberation, you have to die to the old way to be made new. So so Jesus has promised that, and she is simply, profoundly, extravagantly, beautifully saying, yes, I, I trust you. Okay, if Matthew is putting in front of us a contrast, on one side is a rejection, an overt rejection. One is maybe a more passive struggle, doubt, frustration, rejection. Judas will embody the betrayal all the way to the end. I think in this moment you could lump the disciples and the religious leader together because at least for the next frames, they're going to struggle to be faithful. They're going to deny him in the garden. They're going to abandon him. They're going to say they don't even know him. They embody those who say no. And here's this woman who says yes. And Matthew wants to ask you, where are you with that? How do you see Jesus? When he says you need a sacrifice for your sin to get you out of the slavery that you're in and that the only hope is that God himself would be the Lamb of God who would take away your sins, do you say yes? Or like the disciples, do you try to manage that? Do you, do you get frustrated with that? Do you get indignant with those who put their only hope there and are extreme in that sense? Or will you actually bow the knee in such a way you say, what he's done is beautiful. It, it demands my whole life. And have you pushed all your chips to the center in your trust to Jesus? I think beautifully Matthew tells a historically accurate story. He puts it here for us in a way to highlight the the options in front of you. 
I want to like put that in front of you. Uh, I don't want to move past that too fast. I don't want to uh, have you go, yeah, of course, I grew up in church. Of course, I mean, I went to be best as a little kid. Of course, I went to a Christian college. I was a part of a college ministry. And my parents are Christians. I give, I give money. I'm part of a small group. I'm, I'm here almost every Sunday. It's not the same thing as saying, I needed a sacrifice. He died in my place. That is my only hope. And pushing all your security, all the value, all of your worship into that space and say, Jesus, you and you alone are what can rescue and save me. I wonder if you've done that. And if you haven't, I want to invite you to. Like it's not a challenge, right, where I want to split the room in half. It's, a, it's an invitation. Jesus is saying this to invite you. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to experience his love. He wants the sacrifice that he made on the cross to be applied to you. And so he puts this in front of you as a choice. And if you hear him calling you, if you could assess your own life and go, you know what, there's no amount of power I could hold on to that would make me okay. I can't manage the stuff around me. And actually, when the more I try, like these disciples, I get more and more frustrated. Horizontally, like the diagnosis is out that I actually lash out to those around me because they get in the way of me managing my life. And I can't hold on to all the power the way I want to. I can't get the approval that I think I deserve or need. I can't keep doing it. So I move to those around me and actually get frustrated. I get, I get indignant. That would be a symptom of you saying maybe with your lips that you follow after God, but you're you're frustrated with those around you in ways that you're looking to something other than Jesus to be your hope. Because the pattern here of the disciples that we see like in verse 8, where they start to get frustrated with what they see, and they even call this a waste. What a waste for someone to put all their chips in the center of the table. Why not just part of it? Why not diversify your portfolio? Why not have a couple of different options? Why why not earn your righteousness through your good behavior? Why not learn a bunch of stuff to make yourself right with God and also pray a prayer and trust him? This woman says, no, no, no. There's nothing you could add. There's nothing you could do. There's no way to manage this whole thing. You have to actually put all of your trust in the one who said he was going to die in your place. That, That is your only hope. To be saved. So, so in a little while, we'll take communion. It'll be a couple minutes from now. And when we do that, if you're trusting Christ for the first time, his broken body and shed blood, which he'll be explicit about in the next passage. I love where we're going to end in our study in Matthew with an invitation to a meal where Jesus just says, hey, my body and my blood is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. It is what makes your hope secure. He's going to give that meal as an invitation. I want to invite you this morning if you haven't yet trusted Christ, to do that. There'll be folks actually in the back too that would love to pray for you just out the doors to the couches there. They, they would pray for you. You could talk to somebody there. I'll be up here at the front. Would love to dialogue with you about what that actually means. But, but I don't want to just blow past the invitation that comes from the contrast. And I have in my notes like a caution here. And I'm kind of dancing around it a little bit. There's something about the way the disciples, because of their misplaced devotion or their confusion, in fact, they're still holding on to their own little small power. They, they keep struggling with how to make themselves significant. What happens is they lash out at this woman who has done something beautiful and extravagant. There, there's some kind of caution here about even the way that they do this. They, they say, oh, what a waste. This would have been better to give this to the poor. And other, other accounts tell us it wasn't that they had a concern for the poor. It's that they were skimming off the top and this was cutting into their pockets. So there's a caution sometimes to think about what we are outraged about, to not miss an opportunity to go, why are you so bothered by that? 
And maybe you're quoting something that's good, like we should care for the poor. But what if you're hiding behind that something of a cold heart? What if you use anger and say you're just being clear? What if you use gossip and say you're, you're just being honest? What, what if you're driven to self-soothe sexually and you call it simply comfort? What if you're climbing some sort of ladder in a hope to justify yourself and you're just simply calling it hard work? What if there are places where you're hiding a cold heart behind like a biblical truth? It would be a common pattern throughout Scripture. And the evidence would be how you feel about those around you. How you see those who are giving their full devotion to God. The, the disciples are exposed in this moment because of their indignation. Extravagant worship shouldn't elicit indignation from those who are also worshiping God. But if you're worshiping something else like your own reputation, or your own ideas, or your own comfort, or your own system, or your own way to make your life work, if that's what you're worshiping, then threats to that of other people who have a different view or who, who are more extreme in their devotion, that does elicit you to get frustrated. I would just maybe caution you, like, what are you angry about? Like, if we're watching these as portraits, right, just stop and go, this week, where did you get indignant? And is it possible that it was covering something deeper? There's no accusation here. There's too many of us in the room to give like an example for everybody's heart. I have nobody in my mind except myself. Think about places where my anxiety and my fear and my pride and my insecurities flare up and they cause me to blame something else for what's really going on inside of me. That, I'll go first. That happens to me. And the antidote to that is the content of this good news. To the degree that our hearts are tied to Jesus it quiets all those other loves. So to be fully gospel-centered is to see him as the center of the universe, the thing that we treasure the most, the thing that we're aspiring to the most, the thing that we want other people to be in alignment with. So if they disagree with us about politics or policies or other initiatives in culture or they have different preferences or different beliefs about nuances of doctrine or whatever those things are, it doesn't make anger come out of me. It makes curiosity or nearness or closeness or fellow journeying questions, right? It has me come close to them rather than push away from them. But a telltale sign that I am resisting God is that I get angry, the insecurity, the anxiety that happens when I encounter somebody who's doing things different than me. This is complicated for sure, but you're invited to examine that. And because what the scriptures offer is your hope in Jesus, not your hope in doing that perfectly, what good news is it like you're not right with God because you, you do righteous things or even though you trust God perfectly. That's not where your hope is. It's in who you are trusting in. It's in saying, I do believe you that you're going to the cross and you're going to die in my place. I'm going to prepare you for that burial with all of my life. I'm trusting that your words are true and that will be my hope. I just want to give you an invitation as we're taking time to look at this contrast to just see, man, are there places? Because we're fairly like, complicated people and most of us are a mixed bag of doubt and faith we've seen that throughout Matthew as well and so in that space you get a chance to ask hey, where, where might I be trusting something else that I could turn away from and turn back to Jesus I want to give you that caution and then just simply end with what we've been saying the whole time uh, of a call to trust again I think Matthew's putting a choice in front of you so so I just want to put that choice back in front of you w will you trust him do you see him as beautiful and do you see him as your only hope and that his death on the cross is the only way that you've made right with God? 
that's where you are, the Bible would say you're a follower of Jesus. And I would invite you in a moment to come and take communion as an example of that. We'll talk about it more next week and how he teaches us there, but it's trusting in his broken body and in his shed blood for our righteousness. That's what makes you a follower of God. So if that's you, I want to invite you to take communion. If it's not you, I want to invite you to take Jesus. I invite you to trust him. I want to invite you to see him uh, as keeping his promise. And if you're not ready yet, man, this is not a pressured community. I want to be earnest about this because what's on the line is eternal. But I don't want you to feel manipulated or pressured. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray if you're not sure if Jesus is real or if his words are reliable or this story maybe seems out of place to your experience. And so you could just take some time this morning to pray. And you could pray silently. You could also go to the back of the room and have someone pray for you at those couches. The chance to actually be prayed for would be beautiful. I would love for you to respond. Even if you're not ready to trust Christ, I want you to respond to the good news of what he's done by asking him to examine your heart and see if it's true. So, so there's a call here for all of us. I want to give us a time now to actually respond. Would you bow your head with me? Well, we take communion as we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. There'll be lines here at each of the rows. There'll be a gluten-free station here in the middle. For all who are trusting Jesus, I ask you to come. The same way this woman came and poured out her life, her heart, her devotion, would you take Christ in extravagant ways this morning? If you're not ready yet, Christ loves you. Would you just pray? Jesus, we ask now that you would come. Would you fill the room now with faith? Would you help us to believe? Would you sort out our doubts and frustrations? Uh, there's a truth about us that we're a mix in a lot of ways. Um, we ask God just for help. Would you help us see you clearly? Help us trust your sacrifice. Uh, and would you change my friends' lives because of that, the same way you changed this woman. Thanks you made it possible for us to be liberated and set free because you took our place. What a beautiful God you are. What a, a gracious, loving God you are. Um, thank you for giving us this option to look at you and choose. And now would you grant faith so people can choose. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready, and then we'll sing.